Oh, well, friends, Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason. Thank you for joining me today. I am uh, back in the saddle again, so to speak, and uh, glad to be part of your uh, your week. I've been in Wisconsin for, gee, three weeks plus a little bit. Did a couple of uh, makeup shows before I left, so you didn't miss my voice most of the time. Most of the time, I think. But was somebody else sitting here for a while while I was gone? Was Jay Warner in this? No, he wasn't. So <clears throat> I don't know who was here. Maybe it was just me making up for lost time or whatever. But I am uh, live and lively here. That means um, you can call if you like, 855-243-9975. <clears throat> that would be the number you call during the live show, which you're not listening to it live. So just make a note and you can call during that time, unless somebody's live streaming. And then you can get me at that number. We actually have some people on board here that are <clears throat> waiting to chat with me, and I'm looking forward to that. Now, um, I had a, an interesting time in Wisconsin. Um, I posted a few things, uh, some fishing stuff and some construction stuff or whatever on the Facebook, but I wasn't as faithful a Facebook poster as I might have been. So my apologies to those who are trying to follow the events a little bit. Um, on uh, on Facebook, and uh, it's just, uh, I don't know, I just didn't get around to doing all that stuff that kept you informed, but uh, it was nice to have a rest. It's nice to be back on board uh, chatting with you. <clears throat> I did see an article that, that um, what is, one of those uh, things like, um, I told you so moment or whatever. Years ago, when the whole gender issue uh, became, be began to uh, present itself, and people were m making claims to be a different sex or gender than th their body represented. Um, I, 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 I offered a thought, okay, and uh, it's parody, okay. In other words, you you kind of give an extreme example. And uh, to show how foolish this way of looking at things was. And I think the parody I offered was, if somebody thought they were a rabbit, would we take that seriously? I mean, if they, if they, if they had a belief about themselves that was just false, would we encourage that belief? Would we put them in a hutch if that's what they wanted where they wanted to live? Would he give them a straw bed and feed them carrots? And uh, if they wanted to have, like, their ears surgically changed so they had fur attached to their ears, and their ears were longer in some way, would we kind of go along with that? Now, I realize now, years later, when I, re when I re reflect on the parody that I was doing, such a parody now would be considered radically insensitive, okay? Um, and this is actually part of my concern. What, what Francis Schaeffer said long ago was, what is unthinkable yesterday is thinkable today and ordinary and commonplace tomorrow. In other words, uh, our sensibilities get velocitized. You know, velocitize. That's when you get in a car and you start accelerating. And when you go from zero to 40, it feels like you're going kind of fast. But when you stay at 40 for a while, you get used to it. 
and then you go from 40 to 60, and then 60 seems fast by comparison, but you get used to that. And then you go from 60 to 90, whoa, until you are traveling at 90 miles an hour for a while, and then you get used to that. And this is the psychological impact of being velocitized. So you're actually traveling at a very dangerous speed, but it doesn't feel dangerous. And this happens with lots of things, okay? And now we are velocitized regarding this issue. And so if I were to to give this illustration, look, if we thought you were a rabbit, would you, and you wanted to lengthen your ears and put fur on your body or something, would we take that seriously? I think in with the frame of mind people have today, this would be considered incredibly insensitive. Well, I know it would be considered that. People who have mentioned or said much more mild things about this issue um, have been severely chastised. They've lost their jobs or whatever. I mean, one doctor apparently at Mayo Clinic right now is facing discharge because he said there are only two sexes, a doctor at Mayo. All right. So obviously, then this is a very sensitized issue. However, what I said years ago by offering the parody, which I hoped at the time would wake people up a little bit and and help them to see how ridiculous this was. This is what parodies are meant to do. I said the problem with offering a parody nowadays is that the parody ends up becoming reality. The thing that you thought was extreme that is meant to make the point of something else less extreme that is parallel to help you see how foolish the less extreme thing is because it compares to this really obviously extreme thing now, or my my prediction was, eventually becomes mainstream. So it's not extreme at all. It's ordinary and commonplace. So I had predicted something, or I, I'd used as a parody this characterization of people considering themselves an animal of some sort. Well, I have in front of me from uh, 19 June, three weeks ago, article from the uh, the Telegraph. It's a UK paper. <clears throat> Headline, schools let children identify as horses, dinosaurs, and a moon. An extraordinary report from a Sussex school has shed light on the growing trend of pupils. These are kids now, insisting on being addressed as animals. Now, this may seem like play, but it's not, at least not in all cases. And I'm just reading from the article. I'm going to read a lot here. Just, I mean, it speaks for itself. I'll pause for some commentary on occasion, but. Difficult as it may be to believe, children at a school in East Sussex were reprimanded last week for refusing to accept a classmate's decision to self-identify as a cat. The eight-year pupils, I'm sorry, the year eight pupils, what would that be? Would that be eighth grade? I don't know how their system works. Maybe. The year eight pupils were told they would be reported to a senior leader after their teacher said that they had really upset, that's in quotes, the fellow pupil by telling them, it's interesting how they write this, it's a, te- it's a fellow pupil who was a, well, let me, I'll just read it and then comment. 
They'd be reported to a senior leader after their teacher said they had, quote, really upset, close quote, the fellow pupil by, pupil by telling them, you're a girl. Well, you're a girl is kind of a statement of obvious observation, but it's also singular. In the article, they didn't say the fellow pupil really upset the fellow pupil by telling her. They just said telling them, which is plural, speaking of an individual. And that's the only way you could do it without mentioning a gender with a pronoun. <laughs> oh, the incident at uh, Rye College first reported in the Daily Telegraph yesterday was not a one-off. Inquiries by this newspaper have established that other children at other schools are also identifying as animals, and the responses of parents suggest that the schools in question are hopelessly out of their depth on the question of how to handle the pupils' behavior. So here's the question. Why, why is this going on, for one? And why are the schools out of their depth? They don't know what to do. And the reason they don't know what to do is because they have another policy about another issue that is parallel to which there is also obvious confusion. But the confusion in that case is politically correct. This article goes on to say there are students that have identified they want to be addressed as a dinosaur, another one as a horse, another one as a moon, like the heavenly body. Stories about children self-identifying as animals, sometimes referred to as furries, now, I knew about furries quite a while ago. I might have made a comment about this, how my prediction of the parody being fulfilled in reality uh, has come true with this group of furries. But this, to me, is a, a more extreme characterization of that, because these are kids that are doing this, and they're serious about it. And when the classmates make the obvious observation, you're a girl, the girl gets upset and the teacher backs her and reprimands the students. Anyway, these stories have been circulating for some time. Some of them, uh, such, such as <clears throat> tales of schools providing litter trays. You know what litter trays are for? If you've got a cat, we call it litter box in here. They call it litter tray to cater for children identifying as cats. So, oh, you're a cat. Well, you need a litter box to use for the bathroom. Here you go. Now, these have turned out to be hoaxes, it says here, which made it all too easy to assume that the problem is either a myth or wildly exaggerated, but it's not difficult to find genuine examples of children in the UK schools insisting on being addressed as animals. And by the way, uh, uh, and raising two important questions, why is it happening and how should teachers respond? Let me get to that in a moment. But I, I kind of read over something a little more quickly. I was reading, since I've only read little pieces of this, and now I'm reading through the whole thing. I thought this was an actual account, this example of kids getting litter boxes, because they thought they were cats. And then they said, oh, no, that was wildly exaggerated or myth. Okay, and my response is, oh, maybe today, but maybe not tomorrow. Given the kind of response to this whole situation this school and other schools have had, why would we be surprised if someone who thought he or she was a cat 
wanted a litter box, and the school wouldn't give that litter box to them. Anyway, why is it happening? How should teachers respond? The article continues, uh, perhaps tellingly, the incident at Rye College at Church of England School happened at the end of a class on life education, in which children were told by their teacher that there were lots of genders, including agender, people who don't believe that they have a gender at all. Okay, pause for a second. Here's the two most important words in that sentence. Don't believe. People are agender if they don't believe that they have a gender at all. Notice that what's important here is not what gender they actually have in the real world. What's important about defining reality is what they believe. Okay, so this is relativism in its most radical sense. Reality is what is created in my mind. An argument ensued in which two pupils disagreed with the teacher, saying that there was no such thing as a gender because, quoting now, if you have a vagina, you're a girl, and if you have a penis, you're a boy, that's it. Close quote. Now, I would think that that uh, would be <laughs> uncontroversial. When the pupils told their classmates, how can you identify as a cat, the classmate, rather, that's this girl, apparently, how can you identify as a cat when you're a girl? The teacher reprimanded them for questioning the child's identity. That's in quotes. Now, in this instance, the teacher in charge of the class appears to have been bracketed, bracketed a child's desire to be treated as a cat with other children's desire to be treated as another gender or genderless. Okay, now I'm going to pause. Why not? What this is is called a logical slippery slope. And there are slippery slope fallacies, but this is not one of them. If you follow a logic, a line of thinking that you think is valid that leads to a particular conclusion that you support, the same line of thinking can lead to other conclusions. And if the line of thinking leading to one conclusion is a legitimate line of thinking, it is just as legitimate for the other lines of thinking. In other words, if gender is determined by what a person believes about themselves and not what their body looks like, why not species? Why not a person's species has nothing to do with what their body looks like. It has to do not with what's on the outside, but rather with what's on the inside, in their mind, so to speak. So what these students are doing is simply applying the gender fluidity line of thinking to species. If we could be fluid with gender, why can't we be fluid with regards to species? No, I think that's a fair question. And that's what's called the logical slippery slope. The logic of the first slips into application to other things that are equally justified by the same logic. Now, the school, which does not dispute that the incident happened, said it was committed to, said that the school said it was committed to inclusive education, 
but would be, quote, reviewing our processes to ensure such events do not take place in the future, close quote. Now, at first, I wasn't quite sure what they mean by, we're going to ensure that they don't take place in the future. You're going to disallow students from saying you're a girl? I'm not sure. But the next paragraph says, the school seems to have accepted that the teacher in question was wrong. But it's hardly surprising if teachers find themselves struggling to make sense of the fast paced societal changes in which pupils can not only decide to change their preferred pronouns overnight, but also their preferred species. So there you go. Now, it cites uh, the schools having protocols when it comes to gender, transgender people, but the issue of furries is more complex. Um, and uh, it's not just playing. Uh, but apparently... Um, it's real. Okay. Um, it's a mental health issue, the article says, used as cope, a coping mechanism. This is when they, well, let me just back up. Is it simply a spillover from early childhood imaginative play or the growing phenomena of cosplay in which participants dress up as superheroes, aliens, animals, or whatever else they choose being brought into the classroom where children should be politely told to leave their fantasies at the gates. So what is it? What's going on here? Is it a mental health issue used as a coping mechanism by children who have autism or other difficulties and who should be treated sympathetically in the same way as other pupils with special needs? Or does it conceal something much darker going on in the child's life? And then they have these conversations about what they think is the case. Teachers want... Uh, well, Tracy Shaw of the Grassroots Safe Schools Alliance. Okay, that tells you right away what's going on here. What safe schools means, it doesn't mean to keep people mentally safe. It means having a safe space for them to believe whatever they want about themselves. Anyway, maybe I'm jumping the gun here. Tracy Shaw of the Grassroots Safe Schools Alliance said children coming to school and insisting on being addressed as an animal should sound loud alarm bells and teachers already have all the tools they need to deal with the issue if they would stop conflating it with gender diversity. Hmm. So apparently Tracy Shaw says this is a problem. Safe Schools Alliance is for gender diversity, not for animal diversity, apparently. Why not? Teachers should be dealing with this under existing safeguarding framework, she says. If a child is coming to school identifying as a cat or a horse, that should immediately raise red flags. The teachers should be asking themselves, what are these children looking at online? What forums are they on? What is going on at home? What is happening in the child's life and who else is involved? The problem is that teachers have a blind spot where anything involving identity comes in because they're frightened of doing the wrong thing. They think that they're being kind by affirming these behaviors, but they are not being kind because they are likely to be missing all sorts of things that are going on in that child's life. Well, I'll tell you, frankly, at this point, I'm a little confused about Tracy Shaw. I agree with what she said so far with regards to animals. One pupil at a state, of state secondary school in Wales told The Telegraph that a uh, of a fellow pupil who feels very discriminated against if you do not refer to them as cat self. That's a quote. She added, when they answer questions, they meow rather than answer a question in English. This is in school. The teachers are not allowed to get annoyed about this 
because it's seen as discriminating. The student in question is in year 11, but began using the pronoun cat self in year 9 when the whole thing with neo-pronouns started, the pupil said. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I don't, there's more of this craziness going on. I, I have to read the last, um, say, paragraph. <laughs> oh, my goodness. If teachers or parents hope that the government will clear up the whole mess when it issues its new guidance on self-identity this week, they will be sorely disappointed. Why does the why does the government need to issue <clears throat> guidance on self-identity? It's how bad it's gotten, right? The Department of Education said the issue of children identifying as animals will not be addressed in the guidance with a spokesman saying that the department trusted teachers to apply common sense in each individual case. Well, too late for that, right? The last line. Unfortunately, as parents up and down the country are finding, the problem with common sense is that it is not so common. Well, there you go. And it's going to get worse, friends. I'm just telling you. Uh, it is a sense in which it's this kind of tongue-in-cheek reading that article. It's a serious article about serious things that are really happening. It's kind of in the category of truth is stranger than fiction. But uh, I have a sense that we haven't seen nothing yet. Although it could turn around. A lot of people are real upset about this. And uh, they're... Uh, they are fed up with the foolishness and uh, want to return to common sense. Now, this isn't just a rant about some stupid thing, and I do think it's stupid, foolish, however you want to characterize it, in an article. It's a way people think about reality, and it has ramifications for other things. Remember the logical, slippery slope. And if you're a follower of Christ, you care about reality because God made it a certain way for a certain reason. He made the world a certain way for the purpose of human flourishing. What's interesting to me is that when Jesus addresses the question of marriage and remarriage, or divorce and remarriage, in Matthew 19, he tells the religious leaders this. It's the first thing he says, have you not read? Now, by the way, they don't need to have read anything to know what he is going to say next. Know the truth that he identifies next. Have you not read that from the beginning he has made them male and female? You realize, of course, you don't need a divinely inspired book to know that there are males and females. And that's the way the human species is divided sexually. But notice how Jesus starts regarding the issue of marriage with gender slash sex, male and female. And this has ramifications for all sorts of things. When that foundation is undermined, you are undermining the foundations of civilization. And you are undermining the foundations of this aspect of the Christian view of reality. And therefore, if you hold to 
the way the world really is in virtue of God making it that way for a good reason, then you are persona non grata in your community. And worse than that, it's, like, it's not like you're just not so welcome. That's persona non grata. You can actually be punished. And the punishments are getting more severe, just like I told you earlier about the physician uh, at uh, Mayo Clinic who is facing discharge because he's seeing what is physically and scientifically obvious that there are two sexes, male and female. Okay, enough of that. Let's uh, take a break and we'll uh, get to phone calls in just a moment here on Stand to Reasons. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And Red Pen Logic with Mr. B was born. In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Many people claim that if abortion is made illegal, women will be forced to get dangerous back alley abortions and end up injuring or killing themselves. Well, how do you graciously respond to such a claim? Find out in the most recent episode of my podcast, Thinking Out Loud with Alan Schleeman. Look for it on Spotify, iTunes, your favorite podcast app, or at the top of the homepage at str.org. Have you ever wondered how Stand to Reason is able to produce fresh, accessible content each week? We rely on generous donors so that we can provide you with the tools and tactics you need to be an effective ambassador for Christ. If you've benefited from this podcast or any of our donor-provided resources, including our apps, blog posts, articles, and short videos, consider making a financial contribution to Stand to Reason today. Just visit str.org slash donate to show your financial support. It has been an honor providing you with a host of free resources for more than 27 years to help you give voice to the Christian worldview. Help us continue by making a financial gift today at str.org slash donate. Hey friends, Greg Kokel here, Stand a Reason, giving you a piece of my mind today, as I do characteristically on Tuesdays from 4 until 6 p.m. Los Angeles time. <clears throat> Ran out of air there. And the number is 855-243-9975 if you want to call our show during those times. Incidentally, two new STRU courses have just been released. One uh, John Noyce has done called Jesus the Only Way. And... Uh, I just did one on relativism, 
Feet Firmly Planted in Midair. Of course, the title of that course is, uh, follows the title of the book that Frank Beckwith and I uh, wrote so many years ago. Uh, over 20 now, 22, 20, no, 25, because that came out, I think, the year I got married. We just had our silver anniversary. So in any event, um, kind of unfortunately, that topic has not died away. It's just gotten, in a sense, much worse, or the issue has gotten worse. The circumstances have gotten worse. And so understanding relativism um, is critical for understanding our culture. And so my effort there is to help you understand exactly how this works. So that's the two new courses, Relativism and uh, Jesus the Only Way, uh, available at STRU. Uh, let's go to uh, our callers now, and let's see who's on board here. It's Craig in uh, Granbury, Texas. Craig, welcome to the show. Hey, man. How you doing? Doing all right. Nice to hear from you. Oh, yeah, good to talk to you. Hey, nice. um, kind of as, a, as an aside, and isn't it in one of your tactics, I think it's, what is it, take the roof off, I think, that you take a claim and follow it to its logical conclusion? Yes, that's right. It, okay. That's from Francis yeah. Schaeffer, correct. Okay. Now, you could, with everything you were just talking about, let, let's go ahead and do that. You have a kid in class. I'm a dog. Okay. Well, <clears throat> for you to do that, now I'm going to need proof of your rabies, distemper, and parvo shots. I'm also going to need to have those on file with the office. I also need to see proof of spade and neutering. Right. And right. <laughs> uh, you, you have to give me your phone because doggies don't use phones. Yeah. You have to give me your lunch because doggies don't eat people food mm-hmm. and just follow it to the conclusion and see what kind of reaction you get. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think those are legitimate points. Of course, people aren't going to do that. And it, it's a... Uh, there's there are other ways in which there's no consistency. That's part of the concern, and I mentioned that a little bit. But uh, what about as some have offered? What about a man who self who a sixty year old man who identifies as a thirty five year old woman? You yeah. know, can you change your birth date? I mean, there's all or change your height, whatever. So I mean, if you can change your species, why can't you identify as a six foot nine inch person or whatever? And, you know, find a height that benefits you in some way, and you can identify as a superstar uh, in the NBA, and so people have to hire you. It's just, it's all silly. But unfortunately, yeah. too many people take silly things seriously, and it leads to trouble. It does, and it's just, like you say, how much worse can it get? It, yeah. I, I don't know how it can get worse, but I'm sure it'll find a way. Well, you know, I have a very uh-huh. gruesome comparison there that I often mention when— when I talk with friends about this, I am a bit of a student of the Second World War, especially the Eastern Theater, and and uh, particularly uh, what what happened in uh, Nazi Germany and the abuse there. And I remember what was it, nineteen thirty eight, where there was a night called Kristallnacht, which is the night of broken glass, and how there was a, a pogrom against Jews there in Germany, and a lot of people died, and shops were burned, and um, synagogues burned, and the Jews said, how could it get any worse? And of course, <laughs> now we look back now, it was terrible. We look back now, we, this was a drop in the bucket compared to what ended up compared to what ended up happening. So, you know, it's like I said, it's a gruesome comparison, but it can always get worse. 
as long as the ideas that fuel the first thing are allowed to fuel other things that are more extreme. And if people don't say no more, stop, we're not going here anymore, and there are more and more people doing this, uh, unless they do that, um, things aren't going to change because the bullies are running the show right now. Yep. Okay. So what's on your mind? I, uh, uh, fortunately, something much, much, much lighter. Okay. Um, <laughs> Um, I've only been uh, going to church for about 20 years now. You know, I, you know, I told you my conversion story and everything. But anyway, um, in, uh, in that time, I've been to three, di- three or four different types of church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the churches, everything you know, from the Baptist, non-denominational, what have you. But the one thing that I've found is, I, I guess the best way to say is having a frustrating church experience. Hmm. And that is, would I be a weirdo if I I would be perfectly happy going in church and listening to the preacher preach for an extra half hour (laughs) than have to listen to any of the music? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Because it's, I I don't know what it is that I'm supposed to be expecting with music. I'm not really all that musically inclined to begin with, Mm -hmm. somewhat. But uh, when I hear, the only ones that actually even really even begin to move me are, are the older ones, you, mm-hmm. know, uh, you know, Amazing Grace and the ones of that ilk. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I've listened to the Seven Eleven music enough to want to throw <laughs> up of, and a lot of the variations on that. But I guess really my question is, what should worship look like? Mm. Well, it's, um, first of all, Craig, I share your frustration <clears throat> and... Um, I have been frustrated for years and years and years, and I uh, have been keeping notes as I am in services where I'm frustrated by the way uh, worship is conducted. And uh, and new thoughts occur to me, and I write them down, and I have a whole bunch of these notes, and maybe someday I'll, I'll write a solid ground on it. But the, uh, the concern I have is that it would be a bit narrow. That is, the focus is I'm, I'm wondering how who am I going to help with this piece? I have a title for it and everything, and because it is, it is meant to address the issue that you're talking about, because it would really be principally addressed at worship leaders, and if worship leaders don't follow it and others read what I say, then most of the people who are not worship leaders are just going to be bugged at their worship leaders for not following what I talk about because they're frustrated like you are. So uh, I don't know if I'm going to ever publish it because I, I don't want to sound like a troublemaker. But I'll tell you the title, and I'll tell you why I chose the title. It's a very simple title. Worship Leaders Lead Music. Okay? Now, the reason it's I, I think it's clever is because it's both—it can be taken as a descriptive sentence or an imperative. Worship leaders are the kind of people who lead music, and worship leaders lead music. You do it. Because I'm thinking that what happens a lot of times is uh, worship leaders lead worship, okay, um, is that the worship leaders are not leading, and they and what they what they end up offering is not worship, okay. And I think to lead looks a certain way, and worship looks a certain way, and there may be lots of variations as long as these basic things, I think, are met, which 
characteristically they are not met. So let me give you some examples to see if you understand if this makes sense to you. Worship leaders lead music. Worship leader, I want you to lead. What does that mean? That you act in such a way that you help people to follow you in what you're doing. Okay? Now, if a worship leader is singing a song that has no melody, nobody can follow it because it has no melody. Right. Uh, I have heard, I mean, there is, a, there is a trend right now, I mean, don't get me going on this, but there is a trend right now to flatten out the melody of everything that's sung, at least in the first few stanzas. And the way I described it originally was a bad Bob Dylan. <laughs> I mean, if you remember Bob Dylan from the 60s oh, yeah. and the 70s, you know, and the time they are changing. Well, it sounds, now, it dumb, sounds like buckwheat singing. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, look at Dylan could do it. Dylan could do it, but these are bad Bob Dylans, and they're singing these songs that you, what happened to the melody? Okay, and by the way, if there's no melody, I think this falls into the category of what worship is. Worship is beautiful. All right? Uh, that's one characteristic of it. The older hymns had a beauty to them because people worked hard at the melody and at the lyrics. In fact, characteristically, uh, I don't know what's going on in the background. It sounds like you're at an ice cream parlor or something, but just, are you oh. having dinner? Okay. All right. But what, what uh, characteristically, there were two authors, one who had who wrote the words, and the other one who wrote the melody. For example, you mentioned earlier um, um, the uh, John, John Newton— Amazing Grace? Amazing Grace. Well, the, the tune that we sing Amazing Grace to now is not the tune that Hay sang it to then. It's gone through lots of iterations. Those are his words, but that's not his music. Um, and that's true with a lot of things, okay? In fact, my great-great-uncle was one of the writers of What a Friend We Have in Jesus, Charles Converse. I don't know if he did the words of the music, but the other guy did the other thing, you know. So there's two people together, and what are they doing? They're working to create great lyrics and great music. All right? You mentioned 7-Eleven sounds, songs, that seven, what, yeah. seven, seven words repeated 11 times or something like that. Yes. You know, that's, that takes no creativity to do that. All right? And so um, when, when I hear, in, you know, I just, I, I'm in lots of different churches, and then I hear this, it it really bothers me. And you look around and you see people aren't worshiping. They don't know how to sing this song. They may be moving their lips because the words are up there, but they're not engaged in it. When you have um, the Amazing Grace, people engage the music if the worship leader didn't change the music, didn't right. flatten it out. And I've had, look at hymns where or songs that I was familiar with, but I didn't even know they were singing that song until the third stanza because they flattened out the melody. Okay? You flatten out the melody, it sounds awful, and nobody can follow it. So a worship leader who does that to a song is not leading. And it's obviously not leading because no one's following. Now, do they deliberately do that on purpose to make it, uh, uh, to be given uh, like I, a modern twist? I, I, I'm not sure how much they think about it. Hmm. But I think they do it because it is the way it's done now. And so they're just, this is the style, and so we just step into the style. I don't listen to a lot of contemporary music, but you know what? Most of the contemporary music that I hear my girls playing, it's not flat. 
it's got a it's got a it, it's got a like a melody because they're singing it. So why do I, I I think this comes from certain worship groups that started uh, doing the Bob Dylan deal, and then people wanted to copy them, and so then they do the Bob Dylan deal, and it, it's so cool. They're really cool, but they're not leading worship. Nobody's following, and nobody's worshiping. They're just mouthing the words. And by the way, this happens in almost every single church I go to. Now, there are some exceptions, and sometimes they mix it up. But I'm telling you what happens for me when that, when that goes on. I start hearing that. I have to discipline myself not to get angry at the worship leader, because I want to worship, all right? And, uh, and I am tempted, like you are, just to come late until all of that nonsense is over with and just hear, hear the sermon. But I need worship. I need corporate worship. And when it does happen well, with music that is well-written, that is harmonious, and the, and the worship leader follows the melody in a clear fashion, then, it, then what happens is you, you lose sight of the worship leader, and you are focused in on the Lord and the experience of worship. I've sometimes said, I wish the worship team was in the back of the church, because the worship team often does things that are distracting. And one of the distracting things is when the worship leader gets clever with the melody. And they're singing through a melody and, whoa, 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 you know, one of those things. Oh, yeah. Or some yeah. variation of the music where they, now it's not, not when they transpose, and they transpose, especially if it's the second or third chorus, whatever, that elevates the music and it, it boosts it up to another octave and it brings it up more energy out of it. This is when they just do these little um, creative things that if they were entertaining sing, singing by themselves would be fine. But what does it do for the worshiper? The worshiper's into the music, and all of a sudden, whoa, you know, that stuff shakes them out of their worship moment, and what do they do? They focus, they see the worshiper making this noise that's breaking their reverie before the Lord, and now they're waiting to try to get into it again, okay? And, uh, or they'll, they'll, they'll make up, they'll, they'll do a variation, like a, like a, um, a new arrangement, just on the fly of this information or the music that they're singing. But the rest of the group doesn't know the, the special arrangement. It's the, it's the worship leader who's now being an entertainer, instead of a worship leader, is going off in this special creative, you know, effort. And they're leaving their worship, their, the, the audience or the, 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 the group. See, audience, that's, that's entertainment. They, they're leaving the group the church behind. So um, that's just a couple of examples. They, I, I, some others, too, and that is I, the lyrics frustrate me like crazy. It's one reason I like the older hymns, because the lyrics, they really worked hard at making the lyrics substantive and, um, and euphonic. In other words, having a good sound. The 7-Eleven right. songs, my, look at my daughter, who's 15, when she was eight, could have written a lot of those. Just spill out a bunch of religious words. Just put them on the paper. And that's all they—it just seems like that's all that's been done. Instead of working at developing the lyrics in a powerful way, with euphony, good sound of the language to their ears, you know what I'm saying? Apart from the melody, right. I'm just talking about the way the words are put together. 
there's a rhythm to it, there's a power to it, and there's a poetry that's involved. And these make the songs more memorable. They they are richer to the heart, and they 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 stimulate the emotions, uh, which I don't think is the main purpose of worship. But good worship, I do think, does direct the emotions towards God. Okay, and um, so that those are two things: flat melodies, okay, and lousy lyrics. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not lousy. I mean, that would apply. I, I mean, banal, banal, B-A-N-A-L, banal, mm-hmm. shallow, empty. You know, David said, "I will not give to the Lord that which cost me nothing." And I'll tell you, and, and uh, there are lots of worship songs I've listened to that seem to me cost the performer nothing. There was no labor at making this beautiful worship for the sake of guiding people in a genuine worship experience. I have a lot more thoughts about this broader issue, but if worship leaders lead music, they ought to be leading, and they're not doing it, so they should be doing it. If the, uh, I've said not me, worship leaders lead worship is the line. I keep getting it mixed up. But the point is, l- let what you lead be real worship, substantive, theologically sound, not silly and not banal, and lead. Sing the melody that's beautiful and help the people follow along in the melody. Recently, I was at a church service and the, pa- the uh, worship leader said, well, I'm going to teach you a new song. And you kind of pick it up as you go along. And then he started out with Bob Dylan. Everybody now, we're all together now. There's no melody to follow. How are you going to learn it? You know, so uh, it was just, and I I honestly have to discipline myself to have the right attitude so that I'm not, like, overly critical of what's happening there. And I, I will tell you, I, my, my, I've, uh, uh, my legs are not really very good right now. I have back problems. So because of that, and especially if I'm doing the sermon, I'm going to be getting up, standing for a better part of an hour. I sit during worship, and I bow my head, and I don't participate in the worship. I pray. I pray That's about exactly things. What that, I do. There you go. And I'm being left out of worship, but I think most of the other people who are standing are being left out as well, because what's happening is not a leader leading, a worship leader leading worship. He's not leading, and it's not worship. So anyway, now I'm not judging in any sense people's motives or desires or spirituality or anything like that. These are very Mm -hmm. well-intentioned people, and they may be skilled or gifted in music. But that needs to be expressed in a very particular way, I think, when you are a worship leader leading worship. It's got to be a melody that people can follow. And by the way, it's a popular song. Don't change up in the middle. Keep singing the standard stuff. Don't throw any trills in it. Don't mix people up. Don't confuse them. And then have music that has that is has lyrics that are noble. Doesn't mean it has to be complicated. Barry Maguire. I don't know if you know who Barry Maguire is. He used to be a no. performer in the 60s. Uh, the the Eve of Destruction was one of his one of his famous things before he was a Christian. He became a Christian um and uh, did Christian music during the Jesus movement. 
and he had a, a he had a, a a simple song regarding uh it was for communion and i'm not going to sing it really but it was very simple take this bread i give to you and as you do remember me okay got half the melody in there but take this bread i give to you and as you do remember me was powerful very simple Mm -hmm. a paraphrase not even almost a quote from jesus but very powerful very simple very delightful smooth poignant simple melody okay this bread is my body he goes into it further but the main chorus there was take this bread i give to you and as you do remember me so it doesn't have to be fancy but it was well crafted it was well crafted so anyway um i probably should take a break here and get to some other callers before the hour is over but uh i, I hope that helps craig um my encouragement to you is do the best you can with the church you're at try not to be too judgmental even c.s lewis had to uh kind of rein in his own judgments in circumstances like that i just read a biography of him and uh, and so, you know, we need to be careful of it, too. But for those who are worship leaders, please, worship leaders, lead worship. That's my strong exhortation. Okay, Craig? Yeah, yeah my, my whole reason for calling is I just want to make sure I wasn't feeling like the only one out there, like some kind uh-huh. of weirdo or some yeah. heretic or something like that. So, well, I don't think but... you're, the, you're definitely not the only one out there. Definitely <laughs> not. Okay. All right. Take care, a lot, man. All right, bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All right, let's uh, take a quick break here, and we'll get to calls here on Stand to Reason. Friends, if you like this broadcast, I know you'll love Hashtag STRask. It's our shorter 20-minute podcast where I am paired with the wonderful Amy Hall, and together we answer the questions you send us on Twitter. Hashtag STRask is released twice a week, Mondays and Thursdays, and it's only about 20 minutes long, so it's perfect to listen to on your morning jog or while driving around running errands or cleaning your garage or just plain loafing at home. Amy and I tackle your questions on theology and ethics and culture and lots more, offering our insight on the questions you're asking or the challenges you face. You can listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your own shows. Just remember, send us your questions on Twitter using the name of the podcast, hashtag STRask. That's hashtag STRask. Would you like a Stand to Reason speaker to speak at your church or event? Greg, Alan, Tim, John, and I, Robbie Lashua, are available both in person and online. Just email booking at str.org to schedule us today. We can address a wide array of topics, from bioethics, gender issues and science, to theology, philosophy, and how to respond to other worldviews, all from a biblical perspective. Whether it's a Sunday sermon, Zoom conference, or YouTube live event, our skilled and engaging speakers can be there, either physically or virtually, with the goal of equipping Christians to effectively influence the culture for Christ. To read our bios and learn more about the topics we cover, visit str.org, then email booking at str.org to schedule Greg, Alan, Tim, John, or me, Robbie, today. All right, final segment here. And uh, if you're watching, (laughs) 
If you're watching the video feed, you might be thinking, he changed shirts. Yes, I did. I have these wonderful flannels I love to wear. And uh, for some reason, today's booth is excessively hot, so I put on a short sleeve. And there you go. Um, that explains what you see. Let's go to uh, Lane in northern Utah. Lane, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Mr. Kokel. Thanks so much for taking my call. I tell you, you've, you've got me nervous now because I'm one of the music leaders at our church. So. Oh, <laughs> my goodness. Well, I hope you didn't take umbrage, but maybe you can um, be at least sympathetic to the concerns I expressed. Actually, actually, I, I, I am quite a bit, so uh -huh. I appreciate where you're coming from. Well, what, what, so. is the, what is it with the bad Bob Dylan thing? Do you know what I'm talking about, how people are singing now? Well, I, I do, and one of the things that... that I get concerned about is exactly that, that that what comes from the front or comes from those leading is not something that the congregation can do. So I try to be really sensitive Good for you. Um, about about making sure we're in a key that the congreg that fits the congregation and we're not we're not embellishing in ways that that are distracting. Uh-huh. Good. Well, that's good. That's a huge leap forward for you. Good for you. Thank you. Well, thank you. It's our pleasure to do it. So what's on your mind? Well, first of all, just thank you really briefly so much for all that you and Amy and the rest of the STR mm. staff put into everything. You've, I've been following you for a couple of years and mm. have been so enriched and encouraged by, by all that you do. Thank um, you. So just really appreciate it. Wow. One of the biggest ways that you've influenced my thinking is how um, we as, as New Covenant believers understand the Old Testament, mm -hmm. and in particular guarding against you know, misapplying Scripture that was meant for Old Testament times and right. Old Testament places. So it's a little bit in that spirit. Um, that, that, I'm, that I'm calling. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always believed that being ceremonially unclean under the Old Covenant didn't necessarily equate with being sinful. Right. In a, in a recent read of Leviticus 5, it sort of struck me, because it talks about how, th in this particular passage, how one may unwittingly become ceremonially unclean, Correct. and then aware of it later. And the text used words like guilt and guilty and sin— to describe that process of becoming unclean, and mm -hmm. even in verse 5 of Leviticus 5, it says that one is to confess how he sinned once he's aware of it. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, of course, what follows is the description of the sacrifices mm -hmm. that should be brought as a penalty. So my question is, how does this apply to Jesus? Now, we know that he was a Torah-observant Jew, mm -hmm. and, and I think there were clearly times where Jesus would have become ceremonially unclean. There would be um, or wouldn't be? There would would be, for example, touching when the leper touched, he touched the leper. Oh, I see what him, you're saying. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Or you know, the woman with the history of bleeding. Right. So, my, I guess my question, and it's more more of a curiosity than anything, is: Did his divine nature act against the law in these cases, and therefore prevent him from becoming unclean? You know, this is a really, really good question. I have never been asked this question. I saw it coming up here, and I was wondering myself how to answer, but I, I don't have a, a definitive answer to this. And But I, I have a suspicion about it, and um, I think maybe the answer comes to a, in a more careful examination of the Hebrew words that are translated in those passages the way you describe them. And does this entail um, a culpability in guilt or sin, or are those the closest English words that could be used to describe a not a, a culpable action 
which we would consider a sin, but rather a circumstance that made one unclean, which sin would also make a person morally unclean, but this is ceremonially unclean, all right? Now, if that's the case, and it's just a speculation at this point, then when Jesus is doing these things, showing caring for others, he, he is becoming ceremonially unclean, but he is not participating in morally culpable behavior. By the way, that would be my only conclusion, because, we, because Jesus was God, the God-man, and he can't do morally culpable things. He right. can reassess the law, declare, for example, all foods clean. Now, it might be that he still kept kosher, but was explaining the point that foods don't defile you. Right. There's a different reason that God made these kosher laws, and that didn't have anything with, to do with foundational morality. That dividing wall was removed anyway, Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2, which kept the Jews culturally distinct from the Gentiles so that they wouldn't adopt their, their, fat, their ways. Um, Lane, here's my music, and uh, I wish we could talk about this a little bit more, but it was a really great question. That's mostly what I have to offer. I hope that's helpful for you. Well, I appreciate it, Greg. And again, thanks for all you do. Appreciate all right. you very much. Thank you, Lane. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye. That's it for this hour, friends. Greg Kokel here at Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. <laughs> 